Well, good morning and welcome uh, to another program today of African Dialogue. You are listening to us here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Uh, remember that you are listening to us on the shortwave frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Online, you are tuning uh, with your streaming facility on www.channelafrica.org. And uh, today on the show, we'll be looking at the apparent nuclear deal between South Africa and Russia. Russia. That's what we'll be looking at today. But before we get into that very much uh, uh, interesting topic, uh, let's find out what's happening in the news with Anusa. In the headlines, Nigeria launches several probes into the church building collapse that claimed the lives of 115 people. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says militant Islam is on the rise and rains complicate the delivery of Ebola supplies in West Africa. Good morning. Nigeria has launched several probes into the building collapse that claimed the lives of 115 people, including 80 South Africans. They were killed when the guest house at TB Joshua's Synagogue Church of All Nations in Lagos collapsed on the 12th of this month. Journalist with the Voice of Nigeria, Ahazia Suleiman, says different agencies are trying to establish the cause of the building collapse and to determine if anyone can be held criminally liable. Uh, the corona inquest is based on the Lagos State Law Number 7 of 2007 and the team uh, of the inquest is headed by a magistrate. And um, the final report of the inquest will now determine whether a criminal charge will be instituted and there are some other professional bodies, uh, the Building Society of Nigeria and all other professional bodies that have also instituted their own interest. Militant Islam is spreading in all regions of the world. This is according to the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking at the 69th session of the UN General Assembly. Netanyahu compared the terrorist group ISIS to cancer, saying that to protect the peace and security of the world, ISIS must be removed. He says the group's ultimate goal is to dominate the world. Netanyahu says all religions and ethnicities are targets. Everywhere we look, militant Islam is on the march. It's not militants, it's not Islam, it's militant Islam. And typically, its first victims are other Muslims, but it spares no one. Christians, Jews, Yazidis, Kurds, no creed, no faith, no ethnic group is beyond its sights. Meanwhile, Syrian Foreign Minister Walid al-Mualim says terrorist groups operating in the country have unleashed like a monster. He says pressure should be put on countries that support terrorist organizations. Al-Mualim says these countries are well known and specifically named ISIS as the biggest threat. 
فداعش فكرة تحولت إلى تنظيم ISIS is an ideology which metamorphs into an organization supported, armed and trained in order to be unleashed like a monster against Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. Let us together stop this ideology and its exporters. Let us simultaneously exert pressure on the countries that joined the coalition led by the United States to stop their support of these armed terrorist groups. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has arrived in Lesotho for further mediation to bring stability to the country. The presidency says Ramaphosa arrived this morning to continue with his facilitation efforts on behalf of SADC to assist in bringing the country back to constitutional normalcy. The visit is in the context of the Southern African Development Community's mandate for Ramaphosa to help create dialogue to address political and security issues in Lesotho. And finally, the rainy season in West Africa is making it more difficult to get supplies delivered and new treatment centers built. This as donors rush to isolate people infected with the deadly Ebola virus and stop its rapid spread. The newly appointed U.S. State Department's envoy to coordinate the Ebola response, Nancy Powell, says top priority is to isolate as many patients as quickly as possible. The virus has killed more than 3,000 people across West Africa and infected a number of Americans and other foreigners who have traveled to that region. Recapping the top stories, Nigeria launches several probes into the church building collapse that claimed the lives of 115 people. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says militant Islam is on the rise and rains compl- complicate the delivery of Ebola supplies in West Africa. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on Listen and enjoy Channel Africa Radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, it's almost nine minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and I'm Benjamin Mushatama with you for this hour for African Dialogue. And we know that in South Africa, this has been a big story indeed, especially this past weekend where uh, newspapers were actually uh, really, really getting into this particular story about the apparent nuclear deal between South Africa and uh, Russia. And uh, remember, we want to hear from 
you in this hour. So do let us know your thoughts by SMSing us on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. And what's been really apparent in this particular story is the idea that uh, uh, are we seeing transparency when it comes to these uh, big deals in uh, the continent when it comes to uh, such things as nuclear deals such as energy deals are we seeing transparency from African governments now We have heard that uh, South Africa has signed a partnership agreement with Russia's state-owned nuclear company that will see Rosatom build reactors in Africa's second biggest economy. The agreement lays the foundation of a large-scale nuclear power plant procurement and development program using Russian, uh, the Voda, Voda Energy or uh, Energy Reactor uh, Reactors. And uh, the reactors will total uh, installed capacity of 9,600 megawatts. That's a lot of power indeed. And that's according to a statement that was released by Rosatom and the South African government last week. But ever since, we've been hearing confusing reports about this particular agreement. Now, uh, in a statement, Rosatom Director General said that the corporation will result in orders with at least $10 billion, which equates to $111 billion billion rands, South African rands, that is, from local industrial companies. Now, on the line, we are joined by Knox Msebenz, who is the Managing Director of Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa, as well as Lance Grayling, who is uh, the Democratic Alliance Energy Shadow Minister. But uh, let me start with you, Knox, in terms of looking at the surprising outcomes. Do we know anything that has verified that this deal is for sure that we are seeing an agreement between South Africa and Russia when it comes to this nuclear deal? You said the surprise agreement. Uh, just just repeat your question. You said the surprise agreement between Russia and South Africa. Well, I was just asking you, do we have any verification because there's been a confusion in terms of this particular deal? Have we heard anything about uh, what's going to be happening between this particular deal? Is it for sure that this deal is taking place? Our understanding of the Nuclear Industry Association is that this agreement is one of many um, agreements that have up to now been um, reached with other countries in terms of technical cooperation. And in fact, uh, last week already, the minister sent out um, a clarification note, and I understand there's another note that came out uh, yesterday saying that there's nothing unique about the agreement between Russia or Rotterdam and the South African government. It's part of the process that the government does have. And they even went on to talk about um, the agreement that is between South Africa and DRC in terms of the INGA uh, project. Mm. It's one of those agreements that, that, that are in place. So there's nothing new about this. Well, Lance, what's your view there? Uh, is there nothing surprising about this deal? Well, I mean, we find the, the whole deal and, and the way that it was announced extremely suspicious last week. And the reason why is that this has got a bit of a history to it as well, is that in fact last year and um, similar um, reports were coming out, in fact, was announced over the voice of Russia last year in October that Russia had signed a deal with South Africa, which would have seen Russia um, uh, build these nuclear reactors in South Africa. 
Now, in fact, what came out of that was that there was a draft agreement at the time which had a veto clause in it, which was a framework agreement, but it had a veto clause which said that Russia had the right to veto any other country wanting to do business with South Africa. Now, if that agreement had been signed as it was then, that would have been, in my mind, completely unconstitutional and against the principles of a competitive bidding process. So it might be, as, as Knox says now, it might be that this is just a normal broad framework agreement, but we are not prepared to simply trust the government on that. What we want is for that agreement to come to Parliament, for us to fully scrutinize it and ensure that that offensive veto clause, which was in the draft agreement last year, isn't in fact in this agreement now. Mm. And also, Knox, uh, coming back to the reports of uh, this uh, weekend, uh, the Mail and Garden reported that uh, the South African president, Jacob Zuma, personally negotiated a nuclear deal with his Russian counterpart, uh, Vladimir Putin. And, uh, and basically, this was to ensure that intergovernmental agreements announced with uh, Fanfare this week took all but uh, his most trusted and intimate inner circle by surprise. It seems that there's also been a bit of confusion, uh, Knox, in terms of uh, the people within the ANC about this particular deal. Are we seeing a problem of transparency here, Knox? No, I think from, from our side as the nuclear industry, there are certain things that we do not uh, deal with in terms of the speculation about what the president does and how he communicates with his government department. Hmm. That, is, that will lead to the competency of the politicians. We are technocrats who would look at the deal and... I think we're struggling... Look at the industry mm. and build the nuclear power plant. Mm. The, the other issue of speculation about who is doing that uh, transparency, that's why we have got a parliament, that's why we have got political structures. It's not our fear. But I can't comment on what um, the, the politicians are saying. I think they should get it out among themselves. Okay, maybe the question to ask you, Knox, is uh, to look at the idea, what would be the processes now after the announcement of the deal? What would be taking place to make sure that there is adequate transparency, as you mentioned, because you do represent the Nuclear Industry Association. So what are we seeing going forth from here? The Nuclear Industry Association, they are competing um, vendor uh, companies within the nuclear industry association. Now, it will be inappropriate for for any one of us or the other members. If one of our members got the deal through DBS means, because it will be challenged anyway. So our official position is the nuclear industry that we would like to see the, um, the discussions as transparent as transparent as possible so that it's fair to everybody. And we believe that our observation is that this nuclear industry is being bedeviled by all sorts of uh, issues. Corruption, lack of transparency, those are issues that are not peculiar to nuclear. If we were buying a loaf of bread, we would still need to be transparent and not be corrupt. So we don't make a distinction between what is being procured. We believe that transparency um, and, 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 and straightforwardness and level of corruption is 
importantly, we, we abide by those code of ethics as the nuclear industry association. And coming back to you, Lance, uh, what are your views then in terms of uh, making sure that this deal is transparent? You highlighted the process should be scrutinized by Parliament, but what else can we do to make sure that this deal uh, is not uh, meddled with? Well, we think that there's two issues here that need to be tackled. The one issue is the transparency and accountability of this particular process. But even before we get to that, we also believe there should be transparency over the debate as to whether, in fact, we should go the nuclear route. I mean, in fact, a, num- a number of government documents, including the, the National Development Plan and updated 20-year energy plan, which came out last November, have questioned the financial viability of, in fact, going down the nuclear route and whether, in fact, South Africa needs that kind of energy capacity, which will only come online in 10 to 12 years' time anyway. Mm. So we, we believe that the debate should first start with whether we, in fact, should be going down this route If we then take that decision that we should be going down the nuclear route, then we have to ensure that the processes, in terms of the competitive bidding processes, are as transparent as possible and are not massaged in any way to give a certain country a particular preference. Mm. Um, in, in the way that those vendors are then chosen. Yeah, well, I'm going to take a break right now, but uh, what are your views in terms of uh, the transparency of African countries when it comes to these major big deals that they usually are taking place behind closed doors? Uh, we heard this particular weekend that uh, President Jacob Zuma, the president of South Africa, n- negotiated a nuclear deal with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Pu- Putin, and uh, basically this was a, a kind of a, a secret visit where even journalists and uh, officials within the ANC and government were not sure what uh, the uh, president was doing in Russia at the time. But want to hear your thoughts. So do send us your SMSs on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five, or just uh, get hold of us on Channel Africa at Channel Africa One via our Twitter handle. We've got Knox Msebenz, who's the managing director at Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa, as well as Lance Grayling, who is the Democratic Alliance Energy Shadow Minister. I have to say, on the record, we tried to get hold of the Energy Department in South Africa, but uh, we really, really struggled. We've been trying to do that since uh, last week, so I don't think they were really keen to participate in this particular dialogue. But uh, we'll come back to this particular conversation and look at the manner in which uh, the whole uh, Partnership will be conducted and continue with this debate. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 20 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. You are listening to African Dialogue. Today we are looking at this uh, nuclear deal agreement between uh, South Africa and Russia. And uh, we know that there's been so much confusion when it comes to this particular deal. Uh, we heard the Deputy Energy uh, Minister, Tembisile Majola, uh, on uh, tell Parliament's uh, energy portfolio 
Committee, which met uh, uh, last week Tuesday, that she had no knowledge of the nuclear deal and that she had first learnt about it through media. So it just shows some of the concerns that people are having when it comes to this particular deal. But uh, Lance, in terms of the Democratic Alliance, uh, the the official opposition uh, parties in South Africa have criticised the deal, even going to the extent of saying the energy minister must immediately release details on the deal uh, with Rosa Tom. Uh, And it seems like we haven't really seen what's happening in terms of the deal. Uh, Do you know anything about the deal, Lance? Well, what we're asking for is that if this is just a normal framework agreement that has been signed that does not in any way bind South Africa uh, to Russia, then we are asking for the minister to come before the Energy Committee with the agreement and put it before us so that we can thoroughly scrutinize it. Mm. Then we can clear up the confusion on that front. But that doesn't stop the process from going forward after that. There's still huge concern that we would have with this deal going forward. And we think that what we also need then is the documents and the debates that have been raging within the Interministerial Committee on Energy Security. Mm. All of those documents need to be released to Parliament as well so that we can thoroughly engage with them and decide whether, in fact, this is the best route for us to follow in terms of securing our energy future. Mm. And, Knox, in terms of looking at uh, the deal itself, uh, it states that uh, the reactors uh, will... uh, kind of have the capacity of 9,600 megawatts uh, or as many as eight nuclear units. Is that how much power we need as a country? If we project the, the demand of electricity to 2030, we need a lot more than that. So this 9,600 megawatts is all based on a lot focus. And remember, it is not just the nuclear. We are also talking in the IRP. It's talk about uh, 16.8 megawatts of renewables. We talk about all uh, something um, of, of gas and so on. So it's an energy mix. So looking at where we are now and projecting 10 years from now and looking at our economic requirements for development and also considering the fact that there's been a lot of suppressed demand when the utilities are saying, please switch off. Um, and then we, we turn around and say, oh, but the demand has not grown as, as, as much as it, it has been projected. Therefore, we must scale down. We from the nuclear source, that is the case. We believe that we have actually attained economic development by not producing enough power. So this is not the time to be debating. I think we debated quite enough. While we are debating, 73 power plants are being consulted in the world. The world is not waiting for us. They are busy doing this, and we are busy debating about what we should do this hmm. or that. I think we are wasting a lot of time. Yeah, well, I, I hear you there, but there's also concerns that have been raised over the use, the safety, and the hefty price that nuclear technology would cost government. Uh, don't you have the same concerns, Knox? I was just saying that there are concerns over the, the use and the safety and the hefty price that a nuclear technology would cost government. Uh, don't you have the same concerns when it comes to what other uh, critics are saying about this particular deal? No, but, but the, 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 the issue about the particular deal, it depends on the interpretation. Our interpretation 
gives us no concern because the interpretation is that it is not different from any other deal that has been signed up to now. There will be other deals that will be signed. So the, as long as we have the interpretation, then it's of no concern. But I, I, I understand from what is being said in the media that people have got other interpretations. That's not our interpretation of the Index Association. Well, uh, Lance, in terms of that, do, do you have any concerns? Because it seems like, uh, uh, as you hear from uh, Knox, there's different interpretations of these, this, this particular deal uh, coming from different sides. Yes, so we had huge concerns over the issue of cost. In fact, that's our biggest concern with regards to this. Now, there's, there's two ways in which you can view the cost of nuclear. You can either look at the total cost of building these nuclear plants, in which case we're looking at estimates of between 400 billion to 1 trillion rand. We don't know yet exactly what it will cost because we haven't put it out to tender, but we do know that it will be in excess of 400 billion and possibly closer to the 1 trillion rand mark. So that's a huge Mm. amount of money in terms of that. Now we know also that in fact we can't afford to front that money. So ESCOM is in a huge hole at the moment. It's already uh, in debt to the tune of 250 billion rand. It can't raise any more money to pay for those plants. And so, and neither can the national government. We also, our government guarantees are already up to the yield. Um, our, our debt is already over one trillion rand. So we can't afford to actually raise any more money off the government's balance sheet to pay for these plants. So the only way that these plants, in my mind, can in fact be built is through what's called a build-own-operate scheme, in which case the vending country would come and build the plant, take all the risk, take all the financing risk, all of that, and build the plant, and then require an offtake agreement for the electricity. Now, as we look at the two examples that we've seen internationally, the one being Hinkley Point in America, where Reavers, sorry, in England, where a river is built in it, they are charging a price of about 177 a kilowatt hour for their electricity. And the one that Rossetom is negotiating in Turkey looks like it's going to come in at about 135 a kilowatt hour. Now, if you compare that to our current blended price in South Africa of 60 cents, then you can see the extent to which nuclear is far more expensive than all of the other technologies. And in fact, wind at the moment is coming in at 74 cents a kilowatt hour. So nuclear comes in at double that. And of course, there's, there's other issues about wind and it's variable and it's intermittent. But the point is, is that whichever way you finance this or build this, it is still going to represent a massive increase in our electricity price in order to pay for 9,600 megawatts of nuclear. And we have to take that into account as a country before, in fact, we commit to this particular project. Another concern that I would see here is that uh, some of uh, the clauses that uh, seemed to have alarmed South African governments within this deal is that they include limiting South Africa to acquiring Russian reactor technology, giving Russia exclusive say over the auxiliary construction contracts, giving Russia a 20-year veto on South Africa doing business with any other nuclear vendor countries and making South Africa exclusively liable for all nuclear equipment procured from Russia as soon as it has left that country. Now, Knox, isn't this a concern for the nuclear industry itself? Okay, but let me try to answer that, that question. The, the figures or the concern that is being raised, if it was true, we would agree with that. We do not agree with um, 
with, with that standpoint, our own studies at the nuclear industry have shown that uh, nuclear is the cheapest form of energy. Right now, as we speak, Quebec is the cheapest source of electricity for, for, for ESCOM. Up, up, other than uh, hydro, nuclear has been shown to be the cheapest form of base load electricity. You may compare it with renewables, but then some renewables are not well, said renewables are not available ten or seven. So there are issues to think about that. So there's a whole debate that is taking place. The IRP, IE, have all done those studies. We believe from the nuclear industry that we should not be dwelling in the past and looking at those those figures. Government has, has looked at all the inputs and has now taken a decision. Why is it that only certain documents that are opposed to nuclear are quoted? The others that support nuclear are not quoted. So that concerns us. Hmm. So that's the question about our concern about the about the, the technology. Again, hmm. we would like to see that the technology is, is we are not aligned to any particular technology. And as I explained earlier on, Rosatom, the Russian company, is a member of the Nuclear Industry Association. So are other French, American, um, Japanese, Japanese and American are all the same. So we're not particular uh, about which, which technology. And that's not our our role anyway is the nuclear industry because we are in fact interested parties in terms of getting contracts. The decision making is between um, the operator, ESCOM, and, and the, the, the government. So that's but but, but that poses a that question, Knox, in terms of there should be a tendering process there that makes it uh, possible for all uh, these companies to tender for this particular deal and not just uh, uh, one country's kind of... Uh, dominating this process? At, at this point in time, the government has not um, indicated to us what they are going to do, but we believe whatever it is that they are going to do, it is going to be fair to all of the vendors. You can imagine, as I, um, let me repeat this, we have got membership of NIASA, people that are contesting for a uh, role to play. It will not do any good to a member. We have five, five vendors. If one of the vendors is given the, the deal, the other four will obviously make noise. So our position is the fairer this process is, the better. Because if we don't do it the same way, and one, one uh, um, um, uh, vendor gets a deal, then the other four will obviously have to, to, to complain. Mm, mm, so it's mm. the interest of in the interest of the country that this is done transparently and fairly. Well, uh, I want to move right. that to Lance. Uh, Lance, do you agree there with what Knox is stating there? It seems like there's you a know, lot of confidence. I, I, would, I would like to, in fact, challenge Knox because he's made a statement here in the nuclear industry, or NASA is, is making the statement that they believe nuclear to be the cheapest form of baseload energy. And on what basis is he making that statement, though? Because would he agree that the only way that we can, in fact, do this deal would be through the build-own-operate scheme? And the two international examples I've quoted show that the prices for nuclear energy in that case 
is way higher than other baseload technologies. So on what basis is he making the claim that nuclear will be the cheapest form of baseload power? Knox, do you want to respond to that? The basis is that what we, what we based on basically in, uh, international studies, uh, that we have we've done, we have used figures from, from the uh, past projects. What, what, what usually confuses a lot of people is that the, we, the fact that nuclear plants cost a lot of money initially. The upfront costs are very high, but the running costs are very low. When you do project finance, you look at the life cycle of a project and do the calculation of net present value. If you compare that with cheaper options to start up with like gas, that is very cheap to install, but the running costs are very high. Mm. Um, yeah, but- in between. So we have com- compared the three forms of um, base load. Mm, Lance- we find that out of those three, nuclear is the cheapest. We have not compared... Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. Lance, you can carry on. What did you want to highlight? No, I just wanted to ask then, I mean, on what basis, though, is he claiming that? Because the only way to look at this is your price per kilowatt hour. That's the way that we compare. That's taking into account levelized costs of energy and all of that. And the point is, is that the two examples we have in the world at the moment are showing that nuclear is coming in far more expensive than the other baseload technologies. So I'd be interested to see what figures he's quoting from and what examples he's quoting from around the world where nuclear comes in cheaper. Well, I want us to move on, as, uh, just uh, not to become very too technical on this, because I hear you guys are differing here on terms of the technology and the methods of costs there and costing uh, th- these different methods. But, Lance, in terms of uh, this deal, how is it going to affect the ordinary person? Because I always want to take it back to myself, because sure. I know this is kind of a big nuclear deal. This is taking place, but I'm a South African taxpayer. How is it going? Going to affect me as a normal South African or African? Okay, well, the way that it's going to affect you and the way that it's going to affect South African consumers, and I think that you're right to bring it back to that, because at the end of the day, that's what really counts, is that it's going to have a massive uh, increase on the electricity price. And in fact, we've got an indication of this in when ESCOM submitted their NYPD submission to NERSA around their price increases. They wanted 16% year-on-year, but NERSA only gets it 8%. But in fact, what they said in that document is that if they had to build the nuclear power stations as well, they would need increases in the order of about 24% year-on-year for five years. That was their indication. It wasn't their, their scientific number as such, but they were saying this is what we expect would have to happen to the electricity price. And so what we are aware of is that if we go ahead and take this decision, we are going to have to see major increases in the electricity price to pay for this, and that's going to have a huge effect on households' living standards as well as the competitiveness of our businesses. And that's the way that it's going to affect ordinary South Africans. Knox, do you agree with that? I mean, life is becoming more costly. We don't need more costs, do we, as ordinary South Africans? No, I do not not agree. Our own studies have shown that uh, nuclear is, is the cheapest, I would, I would repeat that. I, I, I just don't have in front of me now the details that I can give you to, to, to prove that. But what I, what I say is that the IRP and the IEP process included inputs from stakeholders. All those people that thought that nuclear was expensive, they had an opportunity to put 
to, 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 to make those inputs. And we did make our own input based on our own calculations. And we have found that nuclear is cheaper. And even in the literature, the national literature, that, that, that is, there's no vested interest in a particular um, technology. It shows that nuclear um, is, um, is a cheap form of energy. How you, you have, I cannot challenge those figures that you're talking about. That make, uh, um, ESCOM said that it will require so much money. It all depends on what the funding model is like and when they want to recoup the investment. But if we consider the life of nuclear power plant 50 years, and you said that the initial cost might be high, but the running costs are low, it, 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 it just wells out. It's basic uh, project financing. Well, I need to take a break. Uh, I have Nox Msebenzi, the Managing Director of the Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa, also known as NIASA. And also on the line, I have uh, uh, Lance Grayling, who is uh, from the Democratic Alliance, and that's the opposition uh, party in South Africa. And he is an energy shadow minister for that party. When we come back, I'm going to look at uh, the environmental ramifications of this particular deal. And also, as we move forward in terms of how do we make sure that uh, we do not see politics gaining more uh, than the country itself in this particular deal. But we'll be back after this break. The time right now is 38 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. We're going to come back with a wrap-up. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Benjamin Moshatama. Very fiery discussion between Nox Msebenz, who's the managing director of the Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa, and Lance Grayling, the Democratic Alliance Energy Shadow Minister, speaking about this uh, side agreement between Russia's state-owned nuclear company and uh, the South African government. We've heard a lot of confusion. It's now clear, as we hear from this conversation, that this will be going ahead. Ahead. But uh, moving on in terms of looking at uh, what will be happening, we are told that this measure will make available 960 megawatts of nuclear energy to be added to the national grid to help reduce ESCOM reliance on coal. But the big question, Knox, is the idea, is energy, nuclear energy in itself clean? Absolutely. It, 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 is, it is clean, um, relatively speaking. Um, we don't believe that there is any form of technological intervention that is 100% without this. It's a matter of how you, re- uh, you manage the risk. No form of technology is entirely free of, of, of any risk. We believe that nuclear technology has been around for two years. The issue about nuclear waste has been dealt with. We've got so much space. We've got output where there's actually no agricultural taking place. 
deep mining, we can use it to bury our nuclear waste. So nuclear is safe. Of course, there may very well be an accident here and there, but the thing is, nuclear power plants are designed to stand um, accidents and these proper evacuation processes mm. anyway. Hmm. Um, Lance, do you agree with that? I had a conversation just yesterday on this particular show, and uh, we have some we had some environmentalists in the studio, and they disagreed with the uh, Minister of Environmental Affairs on the idea if energy is nuclear energy specifically is itself clean. Do you agree with what uh, Knox is saying there? You see, it depends on how you define clean. I mean, where I do agree with Knox, and, and, you know, I I certainly concede the point, it is clean from the point of view of greenhouse gas emissions. So as a climate mitigation option, it is one of the better ones in that regard. Um, Although I do feel that a combination of renewable and gas-fired power would in fact be a better strategy for us to employ, particularly given the the kinds of uh, confusion over what our future projected energy demand will be. So certainly in terms of greenhouse gases, it's clean. But it's not clean in other respects. I mean, it certainly does produce high-level waste. And we we still as a country haven't worked out a strategy as yet as to what to do with our high-level waste. Currently, our high-level waste coming from Kuburg is stored on-site in the pools. We don't have any strategy as yet as to what we're going to do with it at the end of the life of Kuburg. So that's really where the problems come in as well, is when you decommission your nuclear power station. And in fact, what we have seen around the world, such as the Sellafield plant in the UK, has that come in at a huge uh, cost of decommissioning that plant, because they have to deal with all of the the decommissioning of the high-level waste that has then been found on site. So, you know, it's clean in one regard, but it's not clean on the other. So it depends on on what your priorities are. And, and how you wish to deal with some of those other issues. Okay, I'm not going to ask Knox this. Do oh, you want to say something, Knox? That, yeah, that, that I can disagree with that very confidently because one of the requirements of being issued a nuclear license is a safety case, which includes decommissioning and nuclear waste disposal. There is no way um, ESCOM would have been given a nuclear license and remember, it is being watched by the watchdog, IAEA, without a strategy. There's just no way it just does not wash. There's no way you can say, we will see when we get there. We don't have a strategy for high-level weight. We'll see when we get there, but give us a license in the meantime. It doesn't work like that in, in the real world. Okay. And, yeah, but, and, and, and what I, I can say is that we've dealt with this issue in Parliament. Mm. And so they have set up an institute of nuclear waste management. But the problem is, is that I had stated at the time that it reads more of a problem statement than an actual strategy. So it goes through the various options, but there's problems with all those options. And we haven't as yet, in fact, taken a firm decision on what we're going to do with the high-level waste. That's not to say we're not going to come up with that decision, but it's just to say that as a country, as yet, we still don't know quite what route we're going to follow with regards to disposing of that high-level waste. Okay, Lance, I need to wrap it up. I've got 30 seconds left. Uh, in terms of making sure that this is not just another uh, where, uh, space where politics are just getting all the money from this deal, how do we make sure that uh, we have our eyes open as citizens, as civil society, to make sure that this deal is actually benefiting normal people, it's benefiting the right companies and the right processes are being followed until the end of this process? 
Well, as I said, I think the first thing we need to do is debate whether, in fact, we want to go the nuclear route. And I've called for a debate in Parliament, and hopefully that will take place within the next uh, two months. I think we also need to see all the documents that government has based its decision to go nuclear on, because they seem to be in conflict with a lot of the previous energy uh, documents that have come out. And if we do, in fact, take that decision to go nuclear, then we have to fight very hard to ensure that the tender documents do not specify any particular technology that then would prefer a certain country over another. Mm. And that we will certainly fight for. And then we will have to make sure that the process that, that then unfolds is done as transparently as possible and that it is completely above board. Well, I have to wrap it up. Thank you so much to uh, Noxam Sebenzi, who is the Managing Director of Nuclear Industry Association of South Africa. Thank you so much uh, for making time for us. I also want to thank Lance Grayling, the Democratic Alliance's Energy Shadow Minister. And I want to highlight, as we wrap up the program, we did try to get hold of the Energy Minister in South Africa. It was just very difficult. Uh, we've tried since last week. It just didn't happen for us this morning. But uh, we want to thank the guests who did make it uh, to the program in this particular hour. Now, as we wrap it up, it's time for us uh, to move on. And the time right now is 11.46. It's time for us to get our economics update. And with Sani Matebula is standing by. And after that, we'll have our sports. Thanks, Benjamin. A new state-owned ethanol factory due to start production in Alexandria next year could save Egypt about $500 million on annual imports and allow the country to begin exporting petrochemicals to Western Europe and Africa. The factory, operated by Egyptian ethanol and derivatives company, a joint venture formed by three state-run petrochemical companies should produce enough to cover up to 45% of local demand for ethylene and other petrochemical needs to manufacture plastics, rubber and glass. The project is said to be 71% complete and will begin production in the next quarter. South Africa now, the, the country ranks fourth out of 52 countries in this year's Ibrahim Index of African Governance. This is an improvement on the country's previous ranking of fifth place last year. Mauritius ranks first, followed by Kevere with Botswana ranking third in this year's index. Dan Whitehead reports. The criteria for the Ibrahim Index is based on four areas, safety and rule of law, participation and human rights, sustainable economic development and human development. These latest findings show the quality of African governance continues to grow, but founder of the foundation, Mo Ibrahim, says there are concerns about a fall in human rights and security. Those countries include Zimbabwe and Guinea. South Africa scored a higher average rating compared to the continent and southern Africa as a whole. Although improved, the country's overall ranking hasn't changed vastly in this year's index. However, areas such as infrastructure and business opportunities have seen a big rise. Caribbean countries remain economically vulnerable and require continued support. That's according to the Secretary-General of the Caribbean Community Secretariat, Erwin Laroe. I think the major issue for us is looking forward to the post-2015 development agenda, especially coming out of the SILS conference, which I thought was the most successful conference. 
and we need to ensure that all of the issues that we put forward there, as well as some of the issues we're going to carry forward to the, the financing for development uh, matters, find their way into the synthesis document and into the post-2015 development agenda. South Africa's former finance minister, Trevor Manuel, has been appointed senior advisor to the Rothschild Group. The company provides financial advisory services. Chairperson David de Rothschild says the appointment is with effect from tomorrow. Manuel was most recently minister in the presidency responsible for the country's National Planning Commission. He retired from public office earlier this year after serving 20 years in senior government positions. Financial indicators, the dollar 11.25. South African rands, 9.13 Botswana pulas and 6.23 Zambian kwaches, also at 0.61 to the British pound and 0.77 to the euro. To the commodities market, gold $1,217, platinum $1,305, a fine ounce, brand crude oil $97.23 per barrel. That's your economics news for now. Time now for your sports update with Tami Kusa. Thanks for joining us in your sports. Let's start with soccer, where Zimbabwe has formally submitted a bid to host the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations, the first attempt to host a major sport event since its contentious co-hosting of the Cricket World Cup over a decade ago. The Zimbabwean Football Association, ZIFA, has confirmed that it had launched the Africa Cup Papers bid yesterday at the Confederation of African Football Headquarters in Cairo to meet today's deadline. There are serious doubts over Zimbabwe's ability to host the 16-team event. The Southern African country is experiencing dire economic problems, resulting in the complete collapse of the currency and the adoption of the U.S. dollar in its place. The next Cup of Nations will be held in Morocco in January and February. Cameroon, Ivory Coast and Guinea will host the 2019, 2021 and 2023 respectively. And Zambia's under-17 striker Petsen Daka says that they are ready for any team in the Niger 2015 CAF under-17 cup draws. Junior Chipolopolo will be making their debut appearance at the CAF under-17 cup next year after beating Uganda 2-1 on Saturday to advance 4-1 on aggregate to next February's final in Niger. Zambia will go into the draws alongside host Niger, defending champions Ivory Coast, South Africa and two-time champions and 2013 runners-up Nigeria. And now back home in cricket, retired South African Proteus captain Graham Smith could become involved with the Proteus in some sort of capacity as they gear up for the Cricket World Cup in Australia and New Zealand starting in February next year. Cricket South Africa is set to announce the Proteus One Day International and the T20 squads today for the upcoming tours to New Zealand and Australia. Team manager Mohamed Mosachi explains. Uh, we've got three ODI matches, one day internationals in New Zealand, followed by three T20 matches in Australia, and we finish off with five uh, one day matches, one day international matches in Australia. It will give us a great opportunity because the World Cup is going to take place in New Zealand and Australia, where we'll be heading down for February and March. So in a way, it will give the squad uh, a chance to get used to some of the conditions, 
And at the same time, it will allow the Trust of Domingo as well as the selectors uh, to finalize the 15 for the World Cup. In December, the Proteus will start a three-test series at home against the West Indies before playing three T20s and five one-day internationals against the Islanders in January. In rugby, the rugby championship concludes this weekend with the Springboks tackling the All Blacks at Ellis Park in Johannesburg and Argentina plays Australia in Mendoza. The Springboks will be hoping conditions in Johannesburg will be like that one of Cape Town over the weekend where it allowed for a more free-flowing attack by the Springboks against the Australians. Another debut, another doubt is a winger, Brian Habana, who showed effects of concussion during the halftime break at Newlands. Springbok team doctor Craig Roberts says Brian Habana is doing well at the moment. Brian took a knock to the head in that one tackle of his. He came off as part of the head injury assessment protocol. He went through the test with the match doctor at the stadium, passed the test. However, when I had a look at him in the change room, he started developing some symptoms of concussion. We made the decision then and there that he wouldn't come out for the second half. He's doing well at the moment. We have a set protocol that we need to follow before we make the call on his availability for the weekend. The Springboks are looking for their first win over New Zealand under coach Heineke Meyer. And box backline coach Ricardo Lobsha says that good decision will be crucial when selecting the team tomorrow. It's all about not just the accuracy of the kicks, it's all about decision making. The right time to kick, what type of kick to kick, and to make sure you've got a good chasing line to actually force uh, whatever the outcome you want. And finally, in golf, a new golf tournament dubbed UAP Arusha Golf Championship is expected to tee off next month on Saturday at the Gymkhana Arusha in Tanzania. The business development manager of UAP Insurance Limited, Raymond Komanga, says that the tournament is organized in support of their customers and members of the public who are interested in sports. That's the end of our sport, and that's the end of our show also. With me, Tamik Uza, for Channel Africa in Johannesburg.